have many in our church who are physically not able to be here for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, continuing health concerns, uh, whatever it may be. And so one of the ways that we want to include them and, and make sure that they're a part of our church is uh, I've asked over the next several weeks for these folks to uh, prepare our sermon um, uh, scripture reading. And so this morning, uh, you're going to hear from uh, Rita Dunavant as she reads our sermon text for the morning. And here at Grace Hill, we stand for the reading of God's Word. So I want to invite you to stand this morning, and Miss Rita is going to read our scripture for us. James 1, 19-27 my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer, who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. You can be seated this morning. So we are in week three of our series called Radical, where we're taking the fall all the way up to Advent, and we are working through uh, this text uh, called the book of James that we have in our Bibles. And James is the, um, most scholars believe, is the half-brother of Jesus. And he writes a very short very punchy uh, statements that really get after us pretty quickly and challenge our hearts. Many scholars sort of talk about James in terms of it's almost the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs that we have. And what we need to understand when we work through the book of James is James is not like Paul, and in many ways, James is not like gospel, the gospel writers. Uh, James does not sort of start with a thesis idea, spend quite a bit of time unpacking that thesis idea, and then sort of brings it to a conclusion point, and then moves on to his next idea. Uh, many times in the book of James, what you have to do is you actually have to go into the middle of a section find actually the theme in the middle of a section and then what James has done is he's actually built the argument around the middle section and that's kind of where we are today in verses 19 through 27 in chapter 1. And what James is getting after in this section is he's getting after the fact that there is at, at the core of our lives an ache inside of all of us that we, that we have and it is an ache of longing 
And it is an ache of longing to want to belong. We, many of us, we, we have a family or we want a family. Uh, we go searching and seeking after a tribe in efforts of what? Of being known. And when those relationships or when that tribe is broken and we're no longer known in those communities or in that, in that, in that uh, a, a way of life, there's something that feels missing in our lives. Because inside of us, we have a longing to be known and we have a longing to belong. We were made to be in relationships. We were, uh, it's in our DNA that we were made to be in community with one another. You know, this was illustrated to me so clearly yesterday. Uh, my wife for my birthday, anniversary, Father's Day and Christmas uh, bought me two tickets, a season tickets to the University of Memphis, Tigers. And I took uh, my son, Cody, my eight-year-old son, yesterday. And, you know, it was, it was amazing. There's 30,000 fans there yesterday, roughly. And, and there's about 150 of the other team uh, that was present, maybe 200 people of the other team that were present. But of the other 30,000 people that were in that stadium, everybody was wearing tiger colors for the most part. And it didn't matter, there were, there were people, we kind of moved over into a section that was a little empty, so we had some room to sort of spread out, and we were in the shade, and, and, and it didn't matter, the people that were around me, I'd never talked to them before, I'd never seen them before, but we had a common bond. And what was the common bond? We were, we were there to pull for the Tigers. We were there because we were football fans. We were there because we had something to do on a Saturday afternoon and cheer for this t- football team on the field. And it, and it, it made a tribe, it, it made a community, it made a connection in that moment. And as you look out, everybody in the stand is reflecting back this, this community that they're a part of. They're reflecting back to those. They put the kiss cam up or the dance cam up and, and they're reflecting back in this moment of this, of this community, of this tribe. Why? Because they're there and they belong and they become known in somewhat of a superficial way, but still nonetheless. The challenge there is, is that we can actually begin to imitate that which we are the most closely connected to. David Brooks, an amazing writer and thought leader, said this in a recent podcast I listened to. He said, a lot of moral formation happens by being enmeshed in beautiful communities. And listen to this. This is powerful. Human beings are decent at learning, but fantastic at imitating. And I saw this yesterday, my eight-year-old Cody, he is learning kind of the nuances of football. And he was asking me all kinds of questions yesterday about what third down meant and what, you know, uh, uh, you know to go seven meant. And he was asking me about, you know, how many points, touchdowns, count, all these different things. But by the third quarter, my son learned this, that if all the people in the stands start screaming and yelling and cheering and getting up on their feet he doesn't even have to know what's going down on the field he stands at his feet and he starts yelling and screaming and then when all the fans over uh, with the other team started booing Cody stands up and starts cheering because it means that something bad's happening for them and something good's happening for us he began to imitate those that he was near David Brooks in that same interview he said the 75 to 100 years ago, this is how much sort of society has moved. The 75 to 100 years ago, if you were a Christian, 
You would be known as primarily, typically, your tribe of people was primarily Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian, any number of the predominant uh, uh, denominations uh, 75 to 100 years ago. You might even pick, 75 to 100 years ago, you might even try to pick the neighborhood that you lived in because it was based on how close you could actually live to your local church congregation. Now, so much of that has changed. So much of what we connect to and what we reflect back has changed in society. So what I wanna give you today, what I wanna present to you today is a better way. Because the reality is this, is that every single day of our lives, no matter who you are, Young, old, elementary school, middle school, high school, college age, single, newly married, uh, you've been married for a while, you're looking at retirement, whatever it may be. Every single day, there are messages that are coming at us that says, reflect this back. If you're going to believe this, reflect this back. This is how you should behave. This is how you should operate in the world around you. Every single day, this message comes our way. And James simply gives us a better way. He simply gives us the way of the kingdom and the way of King Jesus. And I wanna say this morning that if you're skeptical of people who claim to follow Jesus, if, if you've sort of seen some of the ways that they reflect back their beliefs and you're like, I don't know about that, that seems off. Today, I wanna point you specifically to a vision of what it should be. And maybe together we can see this become a shared reality in our church family. You see, the kingdom of God calls us to reflect something more, something greater. And the center verse in this passage of scripture that we're looking at today is really verse 25. But I want to read a couple of the verses around it to set the context. James writes in verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he was like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and pers perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Now I want to unpack this section of scripture for us because this is foundational for us to understand where James will take us in just a moment. And there's a couple of cultural things here that, that, that in our culture make sense, but they're not contextualized to James's audience. And so we got to go there first. And the first one is this, James is talking about this idea of reflection or mirror. You see, there, there were not a lot of mirrors in James's context. He's writing first century. Most scholars believe this is probably the earliest book that we have, the letter that we have in the New Testament, maybe possibly written as early as 42 AD, less than 10 years maybe after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This was a very sort of agricultural society. It was a very poor society. More than likely, there was a famine in the area right now. That's why James is talking about persevering in trials and suffering. And he's trying to encourage this group of people to endure. And in this context, there, there wouldn't be, you know, think about it. Like every single day right now, I told my kid this morning, hey, I think you got a little something in your hair. What's the first thing she did? Pull out her phone, selfie camera, look at it. Done. But in this culture, 
unless you were high, high, high society, very wealthy, more than likely you didn't own a mirror. There were no photographs that you could reference then. Very few people had any kind of very primitive painting or artwork of themselves at this time. And maybe if you were lucky, maybe something that had been handed down over generations you might have in your possession that had some level of reflection to it. Imagine going days, weeks, or in some cases even months without seeing your face. You might catch a glimpse of it in a pool of water. You might have a friend who has, a, like I said, a family heirloom with some gold or silver plating on it. But people in, in James's context had to sear into their mind. If they wanted to know what their face looked like, they had to sear this into their mind because they were unsure of maybe when the next time might come for them to catch a glimpse of themselves. It's as if James is saying, Hearing the word and not doing the word is preposterous. Kind of like in this context, seeing yourself in a mirror of reflection and choosing to just forget or remember what you look like. The second thing I want to point us to just to sort of build this foundation is the word perfect. The word perfect shows up in the book of James seven different times. We've, there's already been one instance of this that showed up earlier in chapter one. But it is an important word for this book because it shows up so often. And in one line here in this text of scripture, James is giving his audience something historically and biblically rich for their culture. But we, again, in 20, uh, what is this, 21? We can miss what's happening here, what James is aiming towards. And I want to take you just briefly on a, on a history lesson really quick of what James is getting at here. He says these words, the perfect law of freedom. And if we zero in on that a little tighter, Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 made a pretty bold claim. He said this, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill and you may say, well, what was the law? What did that look like? Well, it was given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament by God. It is what they aimed their, their hearts and their lives to adhere in order to keep this right way of living with God or standard that God had set up before them. And in many ways, it was referred to as the Torah. Another way to think about it was this, is that the law was what helped distinguish but uh, God's people from the other surrounding tribes and nations or the other cultures of the world. It set them apart. And the peak crescendo of this law, what, what if, if you had had a child at a very, very young age, maybe the first uh, line of the law that, that you would have uh, taken them to and had them memorized was what the Jewish people call the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6. It's the same verse that Jesus referenced when he asked what the greatest commandment was. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The Shema starts with, hear, O Israel. Let me get your attention, Israel. And the law was in many ways beautiful, but the standard of God's law was high. Which, which means that for humanity, the law was constantly being broken, which put, to, which put God's people not in right standing with God. To remedy this, the people of Israel had to make various sacrifices to God 
for the way in which they broke the law. But even that, if you read the story in the Old Testament, was a struggle. Enter Jesus. And he says, I've come to fulfill the law. He came to be the final sacrifice for the sins of humanity and to stand before God on our behalf. And let me tell you, that is really, really good news. Because if we still did church now, like they did before Jesus came, church would be pretty messy. So it is really good news that Jesus came to be the once and final sacrifice for humanity. And before Jesus went to the cross, he gave his followers a new command. And we're going to come back to this in just a moment. But, but his new command, he said that he summed up the whole law in this way in many ways. And this was a law of love. And this new command was going to be the way that the world would know who was and who wasn't following Jesus. So, in one verse, James threads the, the, the line together of the whole law of Israel in Jesus. And I've read the book of James so many times and I've missed it. He says, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and preserves it. Let's just say that statement for that audience, for that group of people, was a very loaded statement. He is in essence saying the one who looks intently like you would look whenever you see your reflection into the perfect Torah. And it's as if James is saying, yeah, remember how hard the old one was to keep? Things have changed now. And he says it's freedom, of freedom. And he says and preserves it, not forgetting it. When this takes place, it changes lives. You see, the ancient Greek word here that, that, that goes into translating the word observing has the idea of careful scrutiny. By, 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 in many ways, James had this in mind, that people would give careful scrutiny to God's word, that they may be regarded as Bible experts, but it might not still result in doing. N.T. Wright says, and the point is this, when you look into this law, this perfect law, the word of God, it's supposed to change you. The word must go to work. And when it changes us, our lives will then in turn begin to reflect back to those around us that we are actually, in fact, living in the way of King Jesus, and the last comment I want to make on this verse before we move into sort of a time of, I really want to uh, be very specific in how we apply this, what this means for our lives, is all of this is in the context of suffering. If you go back to early chapter one, what we've talked about, it's all in the context of suffering, trials, temptation, and the goal of all of this is to bring about maturity in our lives. Like James said earlier, that we would be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. James wants this perfect Torah of freedom, this new law of love to change us, to stare at us and us to stare into it. Imagine it, consider it, and don't look away 
until this is seared into our memory and ultimately seared into the way that we live and we love the people around us. So how do we know if we're doing this? How do we know if we're actually, in fact, reflecting back to our society and our circles around us the way of King Jesus, this, this perfect Torah, this perfect law of love, this, this, that we've looked intently, it's seared into mind. How do we know this? Well, James, in this context, actually gives us three indicators. And the first indicator is this, is that it is love-filled speech. His first indicator is that it is love-filled speech. Back in verse 19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Our speech will be radically different when this perfect law of freedom has gone to work in our hearts. Or as the famous Vanilla Ice poet said, stop, collaborate, and listen. Nobody got that. Okay, a few of you got that. Thank you for bailing me out on that. I worked really, really hard on that. I was like, how can I help these folks remember this? Oh yeah, the famous Vanilla Ice song, stop, collaborate, and listen. Everybody should be quick to listen, quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to get angry. Words matter. In the communities that we live in, our words matter. The way that we speak to one another. Men and women, the way that you speak to your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your boss, your friends and family, it matters how we speak to one another on social media. Can I get an amen? Matters. It can build up. It can build into. We can speak kindly. Our speech can be gracious and Christ-honoring, or it can do the opposite and become so, so destructive. And James gives a very stern warning in verse 26. In this same theme, he kind of, again, he kind of jumps around all over the place. James probably was a seven on the Enneagram, uh, just sort of like, Oh, this sounds like a great idea, and this sounds like a great idea, and I'll pull this in and this in and this, and they all need to know this. And I can make fun of sevens on Enneagrams because I, I am one. He says this in verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Love-filled speech is an indicator that we are walking in the way of King Jesus. But the indicator of this, uh, the second indicator is this. He gives this indicator of serving the poor or serving the most vulnerable in our communities. Verse 27 says this, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
Now, there's a cultural backstory, and I don't have time this morning to go into all the nuances. I preached a sermon last year. I believe it was in August. It was taken out of Acts 6 when um, the early church uh, 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 initiated, uh, uh, commissioned the deacons to serve the, the Hellenistic Jews, the widows that were being overlooked. I, I unpacked some of the cultural sort of nuance of what was going on with widows in that sermon. So go back and find it. It's on our website. It's on our podcast. You can find it there. But, but here's what you need to understand in that context is that widows and orphans were some of the most vulnerable in first century society. Widows and orphans were some of the most vulnerable in a first century society. They were often ignored and in some cases they were even left for dead. And the early church had a, had a mandate to step in and step up and care for those societal needs. They were the ones that begin to fill that gap. And it's interesting to me that James uses the word here for religion, that it isn't, no, note this, this word in the original languages is not how we often think of religion, is that it's some kind of inner spirituality. That, that this is some sort of private thing between me and God. In this resource that I have, it's called a manual Greek lexicon of the New Testament. Super enthusiastic response from the congregation there. Their definition for religion in this, in this verse is this. Don't miss this. Religion in its external aspect. James is saying that caring for the weak and the vulnerable, caring for societies the most poor is at the very heart of walking with King Jesus. It's an indicator that we have stared into, we have looked into, we have wrestled with this perfect law of freedom. And there is such a posture of humility for Christ's followers in this. I think of it in this way, is that we need to look around our cities, our community, our neighborhoods, our friends and our family. And the thing that people are running away from is the thing that we want to run to. That's what happens with Christ followers. The things that most people turn their backs on, Christ followers say, the people that, that, that most society will turn their backs on, Christ followers should say, no, we're going to run towards them. James says it is society's most vulnerable. And if we are radically going to reflect the kingdom of God in our lives, this is what we will run towards. And indicator three is this, wholehearted devotion to God. He says in verse 21, he says, Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth, and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, there's that word again, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I'm not going to linger long here because I think James is pretty clear on this point. But James is in effect saying, get the junk out of your life. Get the, get the junk out of your life. This word here, ridding, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the idea of taking off an old garment and setting it aside. And in that culture and society, if you were going to take off an old garment and set it to the side, you would not pick that garment up again. And that's what he's saying. Take it off. 
Get rid of the junk that clogs your life. Get rid of the junk. Do the hard, hard, do the hard, hard examining work of humbly sitting with the word, having it examine your life. And James says, get rid of the junk. James even warns us that the things that we need to get rid of, they are prevalent in our life. What do we do? We receive the implanted word. I love how the beautiful the definition of receive is here in the Greek. It means this, taking or accepting what is offered. This has been offered to us. And James invites us to take it, to receive it, to stare into it, to spend time with it, to wrestle it, to let it transcend societal norms and, and, and things around us that change and tribes we attach ourselves to and to look into this, stare into it, sear it into our minds. Receive what has been offered. Spurgeon said it this way, the first thing then is receive. That word receive is, very, is a very instructive gospel word. It is the door through which God's grace enters to us. We are not saved by working, but by receiving. Not by what we give to God, but by what God gives to us. And we receive from him. And James makes it crystal clear. This is the word that is able to save your souls. By, very, by the very mention of the idea, he is saying the things that we should rid ourselves of cannot. Those things that you have given yourself to. Those tribes, those, those places that, that you have kind of been known in that are destructive, that are tearing you down, that are separating you from God or, 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 or friendships and relationships. Those things cannot save your soul. And James says, get rid of it. Take it off like an old garment and set it aside and don't pick it back up again. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. What does it profit for a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? James is encouraging us in the same way. Rid yourself of this junk. Rid yourself of this filth. It will not do what it promises it will do. And James also talks about not just hearing the word, but doing the word. And I just want to ask you this. How much does it communicate your love and devotion to someone if you never humbly do what they say? You know, Jesus, when he concluded the Sermon on the Mount, he gave this, this picture in this parable of the, the two people who had, who had built houses and, and, and they, had, they, they, they knew how to build houses, but one chose to build his house on a firm foundation and the other one on sand. And when the storms and when life blew in, one stood and one fell. Because one simply listened to the word and did not obey the word and the other one listened to the word and set his life in motion according to the word. You know, speaking rule on 101, if you were going to come to me and sit down with me and say, hey, I, I think I want to learn how to preach, one, I would say why. Uh, but the other thing I would say is, uh, here's first rule, never be the hero of any story, ever. But today I'm going to define my own rule because I want to make the point. 
When my wife and I, we've been married 17 years. When we first got married, um, as a way just to sort of show my, my, that I was thinking for her and caring for her, a lot of times when I would kind of buzz through a grocery store to pick up a few little things, I would grab one of those cheap little bouquets of roses. You know, they're like $7.99, except Valentine's Day, they go to $39.99. But, you know, the rest of the year, they're like 8 bucks. And I would grab a dozen roses, I'd bring them home, I'd have them sitting out on a vase. It didn't matter what color. And for a while, like, it didn't even matter to her. And then one day, I think we were at Memphis Botanic Gardens or something, one day along the way, she said to me, man, I love tulips. So you know what I did? I changed my game. I wasn't buying $7.99 roses anymore. I was buying $3.99 bouquets of tulips. And I remember the first day she came home and there was tulips sitting in the vase. She said, How? I said, I heard you say that, that you love tulips. And, and so I heard you say that. And so I went and I bought you tulips. And then a couple of years ago, she kind of changed her, her thing again. She they began to, that, I think it's, is it, is it a, is, I know what it looks like. I just don't know how to say it. It's like a peony or something like that. And she began to talk about, oh, they're so pretty. And, and I noticed that occasionally she would buy one and bring it home and put it in a vase. And so now every time I go to the store, I buy her a, 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 a peony or, or a little small bouquet that's got some of those in. Why? Because my actions show my devotion and my devotion shows my love. And tomorrow, if she said, I like succulents in weird vases that look like whales or cats, guess what? I'd be buying succulents that sit in weird vases that are shaped like cats. And all you guys out there who are like, what's a succulent? Just ask your wife later. She'll fill you in. It's great. So I got to end. I'm over my time and I got to end. But I pray this has been so formational. And what I want to do is I want to give you very, 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 very specific steps to take in our lives of how we apply this. Because I don't want us to just be hearers of the word this morning. I, as a teacher and as a shepherd, want to come alongside of you and say, okay, let's put this into action. Let's do together what we've heard. The first one is this. How do we do love-filled speech? Well, I want to challenge you to do this. Simply apply the words of James. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And you say, well, how do I do that? In conversations, and right now, let's make no mistake, lots of conversations and lots of subjects, if you get outside your immediate tribe, your immediate sort of think tank vacuum, lots of conversations can be challenging right now. So how do we have love-filled speech? You simply ask questions like this. How did you arrive at that conclusion? I'd like to hear more about that. Have you always thought that way or did somewhere along the way you changed? Here's another one that can, can, can really introduce love-filled speech in your home, in your workplace, and in your relationships. I'm sorry. It is so easy to disappoint people. And taking that posture of humility to simply say, I'm sorry. Sorry, I can't fix this. Sometimes there are things going on in society, world right now. I can't fix I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How do we, how do we, how do we come together? How do we, how do we serve the poor and the weak and, and the most vulnerable in society? 
I want to issue a challenge to our church family that not one family who considers Grace Hill Church their home church would let the opportunity of Asha's refuge pass us by without jumping in and tackling this thing together. Here is what, and I want to be very frank and very clear right now. This is what's beautiful about the kingdom of God is that it transcends political identity. And the kingdom of God speaks very, very clearly. And it transcends current cultural norms and political norms and says, no, this is what you do. And that's who we take our cues from. That's who we bend the knee to. That's who we look towards and say, what is in the heart of King Jesus? I want that to be in my heart as well. And so we've partnered with an organization called Asha's Refuge, who are helping refugees from Afghanistan that are moving into this area. They are here now with the very most basic supplies and needs that they have. And there's a lot that can be debated about how they got here, why they're here, all of the things. But those of us who are following King Jesus say our allegiance rests in him and him alone. And what does he say about this? We serve the weak and the vulnerable and the poor and the outcast. And I want these refugees who are moving to this community, here's what I want them to know. I want them to know that there's a group of people who call Grace Hill Church their home church, who want to show them love by serving them in the ways that we've been asked to serve. That's the heart of King Jesus. And it transcends everything else. It's bigger than anything else right now that's happening in our world. The heart of King Jesus is, sits over all of that. So we say, we run to that. We run into that. We run towards that. So we've got one more week that we're collecting supplies for Asha's Refuge. You can go to gracehill901.com. There's a link right there on the homepage. You can get the list. You can see what's still available. There's a lot that's still available. Buy one thing, buy 10 things, buy 100 things. I don't care. But let's let, let's let this community that is coming here know that there's a group of people who love them and want to serve them. And lastly, wholehearted devotion to God. I want to encourage you this week to prayerfully seek out if there is anything you should rid your life of and do it. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer. And if there are things in your life that you know right now, sitting in your seat right now, I need to rid myself of that junk. Trust the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help me rid my life of this junk. It's clogging up my life. It's clogging up my ability to be wholeheartedly devoted to you. And it won't be easy because if it would, it would have been easy, you would have already done it. And that's why we depend and we rest on the Holy Spirit. You might regress back into old patterns or thoughts that, that you thought you had set aside or you had rid yourself of. But with the aim of our devotion to God and wholehearted focus to God, it is a, life, it is a lifelong obedience to him. And you can do this through prayer. 
Pray the Lord's Prayer two to three times a day. It will speak to nearly every single issue that you know the Lord wants you to rid your life of. And fill up your life with the goodness of God in prayer and reading scripture so there can be no more room in your soul and spirit for the junk that you've rid yourself of. Now I want to specifically pray as we close and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that these words have not been easy words, but I pray that that just like we read today, they would be seared in our minds, they would transcend uh, what's around us, and that we would not be hearers only, but today we would draw a line in the sand of our obedience to you, and we would be doers. So Father, help us have grace-filled speech, love-filled speech with one another and those in our communities. Father, help us, as, as your word says over and over and over again, to serve those who are the most weak and the most vulnerable and the poor in society. Holy Spirit, you, we ask you this morning, we beg you this morning, we plead with you this morning, do not let us just be hearers, but let us be doers of your word. Let us set our hearts steadfast towards wholehearted devotion of you. And that if there is anything in our lives that we know today, I need to rid myself of that. Father, give us the courage, give us the boldness, give us the audacity to say, I'm going to pursue Christ. I'm going to pursue King Jesus with all my devotion to him. We love you. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week at Grace Hill, we take the Lord's Supper together. And so I want to invite you to stand as we do this. And, and, and you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper even if you don't consider Grace Hill Church your home church. We, we want to invite you to participate if you're a Christ follower. And so there's elements in front of you there as well as in the back of the auditorium. You can go get those if you want this morning. You may ask, does our text today point us to Jesus? And I want to say loud and clear. Jesus to the end was loving in his speech. At his very worst crisis, he said the words, Father, forgive them. And looked at the thief on the cross who had done nothing to deserve his grace and his kindness and love. And promised him today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus served the poor all through his earthly ministry. He served the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable. And yes, his earthly ministry was marked by being near to crowds uh, of people who were poor. Uh, they, were, they were marked by being, his life was marked by being near people who needed food or healing or comfort. But Jesus also met you. And he met me. And he met us. And he served us in a way because we were spiritually broken. Our bank account was empty. We were in the, we were in the negative. And we were lost with no way back to God. And we needed rescue and we had no ability to rescue ourselves. And so Jesus serving us, poor, broken, and vulnerable, 
he became the means of rescue for us in our lives. And Jesus was wholehearted in his devotion to the Father. His life was marked by obedience. To not just be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word. Even to the very end, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So today we remember King Jesus. And we remember his sacrifice. And Paul writes these words in Romans, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for just a person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proved his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. So today we take the cup and we take the bread and together we remember the body of Christ that was broken for us. We take and we eat. And together we take the cup and we remember the blood of Christ that was poured out, that was shed to rescue us. We take and we drink. I'm going to leave you this morning with a pastoral blessing from the book of Numbers. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Lord, we pray that your grace may always proceed and follow us and make us continually be given to all good works through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Grace and peace to you. Have a wonderful day. Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Hill Podcast. We really hope you found this message compelling and inviting. If you'd like to connect with someone to find out more about Grace Hill Church, or maybe discuss this episode or something else about life or faith, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly at gracehill901.com. We'd really love to connect and discuss anything with you. And please remember, you matter. You matter.